Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode of the Journalism Salute, we're joined by Alexis Tarazis. He is the editor-in-chief of El Tecalote, a San Francisco-based bi-weekly and uh, bilingual bi-weekly. And we thank him for joining us. We salute him this week. Alexis, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark, for having me. I, I really appreciate any opportunity I get. Whoever wants to listen to and learn about what we do here, yeah, happy to be here. All right, so let's start with you. What's your journalism origin story? Absolutely, yeah. So I basically got my start in journalism in high school. I was a, I was approaching my senior year at a really small high school in Pacifica, California, just a few miles south of San Francisco, and basically, like I was heading into senior year and was putting my schedule together and somehow some way journalism found me there was a journalism class that year and I took it and fell in love with the with the with the profession and it was actually very I mean it was the most perfect scenario for me because I did really bad on my SATs and you know senior and junior year you're supposed to be preparing to go to college and all of this stuff and I really didn't have a clear path to continue my higher education. I knew I wanted to go to college, but I didn't really know what to study until I took that journalism class. And I still remember the teacher's name, Carol Pemberton. If she's listening, shout out to Carol, because she's the one that sparked all of this. And I'm happy to that I'm still continuing to do this. But I took the class and learned the basics of how to, you know, write a story, looking at analyzing media, you know, and from there, I, I had a clear path of what I wanted to do and how I wanted to continue it. I'm from a working class family, so we didn't have a whole lot of a lot of funds. So to me, it made the most sense to once like the step after high school uh, was to go to community college. And I did that. I applied to a local community college, the College of San Mateo, which at the time still had a very viable journalism program. The program, unfortunately, since then has been um, has been gutted, as most administrations do. But yeah, that's where I continued my studies. And studied there from about 2005 to 2008 and then did really well there won awards at the state level JACC the journalism association of community colleges and you know did everything from being a staff writer to sports editor to editor in chief and online editor um and then by that time I had by by the time I had accomplished all I could at the college of San Mateo I transferred to San Francisco state which you know, a lot of my colleagues at CSM had transferred to state because it had a, it was known locally as, as a program that gets you ready for, for the craft and for the profession, I mean. And so I did that, transferred in 2008, met my wife in the program, you know, became sports editor of the local, of the student publication, the Golden Gate Express, and, and eventually graduated and hence started my career as a you know, and freelancing, interning, and eventually becoming the editor-in-chief of, of this publication. Why El Tecalote? Perfect. Great question. So I actually had another serendipitous, the way the universe works. When I was, I first met Juan Gonzalez, the founder, and I'll tell you more about him. I know you're going to ask me about him, but I met Juan Gonzalez during one of those JACC conferences, actually, my junior college conference, because my advisor at the College of San Mateo at Remitz uh, was good friends with the advisor of City College of San Francisco's 
you know, college newspaper, which is Juan Gonzalez. So I remember winning an award at JECC and Juan saw me. And at the time, there weren't very many Latinos winning winning awards, I guess, the on the spot first place awards. And I, I had done that that year. So I think he always remembered me for that after that. And so when I was job hunting or whatever after after college and I graduated and, you know, had finished up some internships, he gives me a call and asks, hey, like, are you interested in contributing to the are you interested in applying for the editor in chief position? And I was scared to death because I had never had a been in a role like that. I've been in, you know, supportive roles, sports editor, managing editor, that kind of thing but never EIC of a professional publication. But I said, hell with it. You know, this is the opportunity that I have been waiting for my entire life. Let's take it and see what happens. And that was all the way back in, ooh, let's see, June of 2014. And now, I don't know when this is going to air, but we are in August of 2022 and I'm still here. So, and, and we're doing a lot. And my job is very, very different from when I started, but I'm really happy with how, I've grown and and how the you know institution has grown with me as well. There are many places where you can go from where you went to editor in chief, <laughs> and that's pretty cool. Explain what the intention of El Tecolote is. Explain things like the circulation, the size of your staff, how much you cover in San Francisco. Absolutely, yeah. So El Tecolote began as a project out of San Francisco State, and specifically the College of Ethnic Studies at San Francisco State University, which is still according to my understanding, still the only uh, College of Ethnic Studies at a public institution, right? And the way that, and I'll give a, the readers a bit of, or the listeners a bit of a history lesson because it totally connects, I promise. In, in 1968, the students at SF State, Latino, Black, and Asian students, united to create the Third World Liberation Front, and they were basically striking the campus, demanding that, you know, their history, their culture be part, that their history and culture be taught as part of the curriculum at state. And hence, you know, the strike happened. Uh, eventually, out of that strike was born the College of Ethnic Studies, which still exists today. And in the very first semester, you know, of the, in the existence of that College of Ethnic Studies, there was a Raza journalism class, and Juan Gonzalez was the professor. And so, you know, he was teaching young Latino folks how to be journalists, how to craft a story, how to interview the ethics, all of that stuff. Uh, but they soon found out that they, you know, while they had all these, they were, you know, creating these stories and and honing their journalistic skills, they didn't have a place to publish them. So they decided, let's create our own newspaper. One doesn't exist, so let's do it. And they were very forward thinking in that they knew that the community that they wanted to serve didn't all speak the same language. You know, we're a very, we're a very diverse community. Some of us are monolingual English speakers. Some of us are monolingual Spanish speakers. Some of us are born here. Some of us are migrants. So in order for them to really get through the message of like, hey, this is us covering issues important to us, you know, we have to do it in two languages. So hence, that was the birth of El Tecolote, the birth of a bilingual community-based volunteer activist newspaper based here in San Francisco's Mission District. And we've grown a lot since then. The first issue that ever was published, published August 24th, 1970, and it was only four pages, you know, and today we publish still every two weeks, 10,000 circulation and our distribution points are obviously here in the Mission. For those listening who are familiar with the demographics or the geography of San Francisco, we're in on 24th Street, all the way from Petrero to past uh, past Mission Street, 
and on Mission Street all the way from 25th to 16th and parts of the Excelsior as well. And even parts where, you know, our other Latino communities are as well, like Fruitvale in Oakland, parts of Berkeley, parts of the Northern Peninsula, like Daly City, South City. So that's where, I don't know if I, I might've missed one of your questions, but those are like the general parameters of. of How big is you your know, staff? Very small. So I am the, we only have two full-time employees here and that's myself, the editor-in-chief, the executive director of the nonprofit Acción Latina, which publishes our newspaper, but we have a, a freelancer designer. He designs our newspaper. We have a, a part-time excuse me, web and social media editor, and he handles all our web content and social media accounts. We have also a part-time editor who at the moment is for the most part producing and co-hosting and editing our podcast, part-time managing editor who helps me copy edit, craft stories. And now we actually, uh, we actually just were very, very, very lucky. We applied for to be part of Report for America and we were one of the newsrooms selected. So we actually, this is the first time in our history where we actually have a full-time reporter through Report for America. Uh, that's Mara Caballero. Uh, who's doing amazing covering stuff? Um, the the specific beat of uh, mental health and in, in the in the Latinx community, and you know it's been just a, an, a absolutely amazing to have a full time reporter because before we used to basically get by with volunteers and student journalists and interns. So, uh, so that's basically what our our oh and I forgot to mention too our Spanish language copy editor is also a a, um, a contractor. And she coordinates all of our Spanish language content and to make sure everything's, you know, coherent and, and copy edited. I want to go to the Report for America reporter. That's a situation where you're essentially creating a beat and saying, this is the beat we want them to cover. And in your case, that becomes, this is the beat. Like, because as you said, you have minimal staff. Why mental health? Because we felt like coming out of the pandemic, that was a really key key thing for us to cover. My wife is a nurse, so she's kind of repeatedly hammered into me that, hey, your mental health is your physical health. And, and being that the pandemic disproportionately impacted the very community that we serve, Latinos here in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I'm, and I'm sure beyond too, it was just kind of really obvious for us, you know, like our folks are going to be dealing with not just like issues regarding their physical health, but of course, mental health. And that just might be the overall stresses of the pandemic. Or am I going to get my food this week? Like, what am I going to do for childcare? You know, so we found that that beat encompassed a lot of different areas of coverage, which is why we selected it. And so far, it's been amazing. You know, Mata is an incredibly well-schooled reporter, fits our newsroom like a glove. She's tenacious. and. Uh, and so far, the stories that she's produced have been really, really, really hard hitting stories. But I think one of the things that makes her really special is that she doesn't lose, she, she never loses sight of having empathy for, for our folks. And I, I feel like that's really essential to her coverage. I, and I think our, the people that we interview and who, you know, people who open up and allow us to share their stories, I think that they feel that, that, hey, we're not just trying to get your quote and run, you know, we're really trying to, you know, find solutions for whatever predicament we find or all our, uh, all, everyone, or all of us in, you know. Yeah. And uh, certainly a couple of stories that she's done, a recent therapist strike coverage and right. a more complete understanding of the 988 hotline, which was right. something that I hadn't seen. We had an episode recently where we did a, we did a whole episode of mental health journalism, talked about the 988 hotline. This article dug a little bit deeper, which was certainly good to see. 
I wanted to ask you about uh, this that I saw online, a quote. I think it was, it might've been on the paper's uh, Wikipedia page. The history of the paper is as a training ground for advocacy journalism and playing an important role in the community by covering issues often ignored by the mainstream press. What are examples of how you're doing that now? Absolutely. So I think, uh, and it's very much foundational to like, or it's very much has to do with how we were founded, right? So one of the things that we kept seeing over and over again, especially in the early years of Tecolote, you know, the mission was kind of portrayed as this, you know, poverty stricken, crime stricken place, you know, and not to say that those things didn't happen, they happen anywhere and everywhere. But there was a lot of also you know, resistance and, and art that came out of the neighborhood as well. So one of the things that we always try to do um, was to to amplify the true stories of our of our neighborhood. And, you know, we saw how not to do that because a lot of mainstream press would do, you know, would engage in like parachute journalism, right? Where they would only come to the neighborhood when there was a fire or a tragedy or a shooting. And of course that and and those all, of course, those are things that are newsworthy and worthy of coverage. But what ends up happening is if you do that repeatedly, you know, audience uh, or folks that read like mainstream publications soon start to develop a an image of this neighborhood as a place where only tragedy strikes. So we felt it imperative for us to like highlight, you know, the 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 you know the different things that are happening, right? Whether and one of the things that we see now, you know, for example, like if you know one of the things that we see constantly are you know, needles on the ground. Like that was a story that was really popular once upon a time, you know, and and even now in San Francisco, if you go to the TL and areas like that, that's a story that gets a lot of play, you know. So what we try to do is is highlight the the services that are out here trying to provide aid and help to folks who are struggling with, let's say addiction or some of the mental health issue or just general health issues that lead to somebody, you know, finding comfort in addiction, you know, graffiti and art is very much part of the fabric of the mission district so one of the things that we covered is not just like covering graffiti from the angle of vandalism but highlighting Presida eyes which is the legendary arts institute right across the street from us actually that every year hosts a a street art festival where they put up these walls where folks can come in and tag or create beautiful murals right so those are the things that we try um to highlight right and and they're not necessarily new like these are things that have been happening for for decades in a lot of ways you know so and even with like you know even with with covid for and this is really fresh on my mind because we've been living it for so it feels like so long but i i sense it vividly you know one of the big stories coming out of you know in general right and and there's there are some truth to it right why we're latinos in some cases disproportionately impacted and a lot of folks kind of point into vaccine hesitancy and kind of in a way framed it as like, oh, it's Latinos who don't want to be vaccinated. But that wasn't always necessarily the case. A lot of the times, and what we try to reflect this in our reporting was access and education was a big thing, you know? So if like there were proper steps to inform folks where to get vaccinated, you know, what are the you know pros and cons of getting vaccinated that might lead to like, you know, folks wanting to get vaccinated, right? So not, so just different, like little tools of framing like that. You know, we did a video you know, right probably when the, the vaccine was becoming available, where, you know, we, we did it entirely in, in Spanish and then translated it into Mayan, right? Because we, ha- we, are, we have a profound understanding that our community doesn't just speak Spanish. Like there are a lot of indigenous languages that are still spoken here. So what we did was we recruited an indigenous Mayan woman to be our community reporter, conduct an interview with 
with one of the folks who was running like the vaccination and testing sites. And all of the information that was being relayed in Spanish was actually translated into Mayan for our Mayan language speaking folks. And that video was one of the most watched on our social media. And I feel like that's imperative, like that in a microcosm encompasses what we want to do. Like we, we see a need and we, you know, we, we try to fill that void, <laughs> you know? So that's one of the things we try to do. Hyperlocal coverage, essentially. Mm -hmm. You mentioned arts and culture besides the, the graffiti aspect. I saw a coverage of a play about a feminist freedom fighter in South America, an art exhibit of Emmy Lou Packard, who was a San Francisco artist. What's the intent of the arts and culture coverage? We find it to be very much, again, again, part of the fabric of, of our newspaper. And I'll explain why, because, you know, I'm a hard news journalism, like I'm a hard news journalist. That's why that's the school I'm from. So I, I'm not gonna lie, when I was coming up in my education, I didn't really view like the arts and culture as something that I always wanted to cover. But working here, you know, I, I really learned how important they are, you know, the, the how art can be a vehicle for change and amplifying your voice. So for example, with the play that you mentioned, Las Asurdui, it's at the historic Brava Theater, right? A theater catering towards amplifying and empowering women already in the arts. And the, the, the play itself is, you know, telling the story, one that I'm unfamiliar with, right? My family's from Latin America, and I never knew the story of Asurdui Padilla, who was a, a military general in Bolivia who fought against the Spanish royal forces and helped gain independence for Bolivia. And her story is kind of one that has been buried, so to speak. And here is this group of women in Spanish with like the subtitles in indigenous languages and English, I believe, too, trying to amplify her story and make it relatable to like the common struggle that other women who have always felt that erasure. So, again, it's something it's a it's a it's an art piece. Yes, but it's also very much relevant to like something that's very newsworthy like right now, right, which is, of course, women's rights, women's visibility, even reproductive justice. I think we can make all those different connections to that, right? And with Emmy Lou Packard as well, you know, here's somebody who had close ties to Diego Rivera, you know, historic Mexican muralist, one of the great Mexican muralists who had a, a, a real profound San Francisco connection. Not only that, Diego and, and Frida are being exhibited at a local museum here in San Francisco. So we felt like while that and we did cover that that opening too. We felt that the Emmy Lou Packard thing was really going to be a nice compliment to that, right? So that's what we try to do. You know, sometimes you can cover arts and culture for the sake of it being arts and culture, but a lot of times there's uh, there's a lot more there than just a pretty painting, you know. And and even with us, like you know, uh, art and you know, because we are a we started off as a very activist, radical newspaper, and art had very much to do with that, you know, in the 1970s there was the muralismo mural a uh, movement excuse me where you had a lot of like it wasn't just chicano you know journalists coming out but you had a lot of chicano artists making their voices heard through murals through printmaking through posters so we very much see the arts as part of our identity and in, in the fabric of what we do and just another way to tell a story is there anything about san francisco besides the hilly streets that that is distinct or perhaps even challenging with regards to covering the... What do you mean by that? Like, how so? Like, is there anything about San Francisco... I, I Like, a lot of the things that you've said are things that are universal. Like, 
what you were talking about before that a lot that every city has them is there anything that's specifically san francisco that san francisco like that's part of the san francisco identity that you try to capture in the paper yeah i think one of the things we try to capture and you know because i think for outsiders right san francisco is viewed as a very you know liberal and progressive city and not to counter that it, it certainly is right but i don't think i think sometimes that gets overly romanticized i think or now when people think of san francisco they think of you know you know homelessness for example right as just being a nuisance or like garbage or you know fecal matter on the streets and and i think what makes it really challenging for us because those things do exist we see it all the time and as somebody who i didn't grow up in the city but my father would take me to the city my father was born and raised in the mission so he would take us like every weekend to walk through here and these were the same things that we saw at that time too so i think one of the things that makes it in you know challenging is how do you cover this without being you know dehumanizing right how do you cover this and and really get at the issue like not criminalizing homelessness but kind of understanding like what leads up to homelessness you know i have my views as to you know why certain things are getting more coverage now than before but i think that's what constantly makes it you know, really challenging as a as a journalist that there's so many different things, right? You have homelessness, you have affordable housing, lack of housing, you know, the different, you know, recalls that we've had to you know, come across recently, right, with our DA and school board. So, and I think if you kind of step away, you do see that there is a, some some interconnectedness here, but that's what makes it makes it challenging. Like, because you would think, like, how can this peaceful, loving, you know, hippie city have this well it's just this is what it is you know we're not immune to you know to you know billionaires coming in and gentrifying neighborhoods we're not immune to that right that happens here it happens in new york it happens everywhere you know and we're, we're seeing that now so i think one of the challenges is trying to provide excuse me trying to provide context for why these things are, are happening here so yeah i think that's what makes it that's one of the most challenging things that, that we have to deal with and how does el tecalote and it's uh, the people that work for it try to be a part of the community Ooh, that's well, we uh, I would argue we already are. And just to give a little bit of context, so we're not a traditional newsroom. We are published by a nonprofit, right? And that nonprofit is Acción Latina. And I kind of view it as like Acción Latina is the roof and the two pillars that hold it up are community media, which is El Tecolote. And uh, the other pillar is the cultural arts. So and we're very, very much involved with community with those with that, which are with our cultural arts program. So that's what we do. You know, we at, in the past have held not conferences, but workshops called Forza Joven, where we invite students from, you know, the various San Francisco schools to learn how to be journalists. You know, we've held arts events where we open up, physically open up our space and, and allow folks to come in and participate in printmaking workshops. We've held concerts in our, in our, in our, in our space here when we invite people for free to come see. And one of the things that we're doing now too is with the community music center collaboration where they we open up our space for them to play music for little kids their chiquitos program is what they call it so i argue we we are part of the community and we see that actually because we have an open door policy so you know like any newsroom you know we're not immune to making mistakes and when we make mistakes our community holds us accountable either by holding us accountable or dragging us, dragging us on social media or coming through our doorstep and letting us know like, Hey, why did you do this? You know? So <laughs> I argue that we're very much part of the the community because they feel the confidence to come to us and, and very, and what's the word emphatically let us know 
how we can do better. <laughs> <laughs> nice. What do you do in a typical day? Oh my God, that's a great question. So my my typical day, I'm a so FYI, I've had to learn how to balance how to be a human being and editor. I can't separate those things anymore. So I'm a father and husband. I have taught I have five-year-old twins. So they very much shape my day <laughs> and how I work here. Typical day, I drop them off to school. They just started kindergarten. I come into work, have to desperately try to catch up on emails, as you might be familiar <laughs> with here. And then so there's kind of the two lenses. So our non-production weeks and production weeks. Non-production weeks, I meet with my team, try to figure out, okay, what's going to next? What's going to go in the next issue? How are we going to start building for that? What dates are coming up? Are there any anniversaries that we should be looking at for special coverage? Are there any upcoming events that we need to pay attention to? Anything newsworthy? And of course, like the just the organic things that happen in the regular news cycle, right? Like some stuff unexpectedly unexpected happens. So you have to adjust and get somebody to cover that. So that's what our non-production weeks look like. And then for our production weeks, like this one, is we have our content, start corralling that content, copy editing it, sending it off to translators, making sure there's imagery with that content, making sure if it's original photographs, you know, making sure that get captions from the photographers. If it's not getting the, the uh, correct permission, you know, either from the photographer, or illustrator to use it, making a budget communicating that with our designer and making sure everything is ready by Wednesday. Oh, and not to mention, we also have our podcast. So let's try to figure out who we're going to interview, who's going to do the interview, who's going to host it, who's going to edit it. And uh, so my my day varies <laughs> constantly, but it's uh, it's fun. You know, I, I'm always I'm always learning, which is, uh, I think, a good thing because I'm a firm believer that if, if you're not progressing you're regressing so so yeah it's always busy but generally that's kind of how it breaks down what kind of advice would you give to someone who says i like the sound of that how do i get to be you (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, i would say prioritize what makes you happy whether that's your own self-care routine do that and don't forget to do that also and i'll just be real like this job is really difficult if you have a family, like it just is, it's, it's very difficult. So I don't want to say, you know, outright, like don't have kids, but you know, I, like my kids are the best thing that ever happened to me, but it is incredibly challenging to try to do this job, you know, the way I want to do it and also be, you know, a present and, you know, kind and millennial father, like, I, I, you know, it's really hard. So I would just say, but number one, and, you know, cause I've learned this the hard way, you know, I'm not somebody who has historically suffered from, mental health issues and blessing and love to anybody who has because I that's obviously you know a lot but this pandemic was really tough for me too you know so I would say never lose sight of your own humanity and happiness and you know there aren't I know sometimes in the news cycle if you pay too much attention to it there might not seem like a whole lot to be happy about but find the things that do find you joy and uh, and don't be and don't feel ashamed to have joy that's what I would say you know whatever whatever brings you joy you know, embrace that because we need that. <laughs> so what's next for El Tecalote? Um, I would love to see uh, our multimedia side, you know, or like the multimedia storytelling grow, you know, because I feel like we're doing really well with with our print. I feel like we have it down, especially now with uh, Mata, as I mentioned, the Report for America Corps member doing amazing. Uh, but I think really, I think the next 
frontier, so to speak, is like our digital storytelling. And I love what we're doing so far with the podcast. It's not perfect, right? It's just a few of us. It's myself, Monty, and a few other volunteers that sometimes help us out with it. But I you think tell it's local sounds, stories. We tell local stories and, and sometimes even regional stories, you know? So, you know, one of the most recent episodes we had was with friends of Wynn Bruce, who was the climate change activist who self-immolated in front of the Supreme Court on Earth Day. And, you know, while Wynn is not from San Francisco, we felt his story was one that would resonate with a lot of folks here, especially, you know, who are feeling all these different grief, including climate change. You know, we interviewed most recently somebody who was who is hyperlocal, and that's Nicole Santa Maria, who is the executive director of Ella para Translatinas. And what was amazing about that, Nicole, you know, basically gave us an insight, not just to like the organization, but the various phobias and that exist within our greater Latinx community or Latino community that have historically, you know, impacted folks who are LGBTQ, you know, so, so we try to cover a lot with our, with our podcast. And, and of course, coming up, we're going to have some episodes looking at you know, uh, some of the, uh, some election coverage, you know, put, uh, I'll put it that way. I don't want to spoil it completely, but we have, we're trying to cover a, a lot with what we have. And, but I would love to see, you know, us do, you know, even more of that and, and maybe even do like whole series, you know, really in-depth series, because I feel like the institutional and cultural knowledge that we have, you know, uh, will allow us to do some really amazing audio storytelling. So that's what I hope for the future. Circling back, is there anything more you wanted to say about your founder? He's he's still very much involved, actually. Mm -hmm. So he's still he's still a member of of our board that you know uh, the board of Acción Latina, the nonprofit that publishes the newspaper. He's still incredibly active at at City College, and I guess I will add this that you know Tecolote has always relied on student journalists. Like we are that training ground, but it's very. Uh, very much a reciprocal relationship where yes we take these young student journalists under our wing and you know they can gain the, the skills here but it's been juan who's been just incredibly helpful in in you know sending these folks our way you know so you know there were moments during the pandemic where we would not have been able to to survive without juan and and his students and to this day like he has students coming up to us you know who are anxious to cover things and they cover stuff for us so you know, Juan is, is is not young anymore. I don't want to reveal his age out here, but he's not young anymore, but he still has all of the energy that he had when he was uh, when he was the founding editor here and still has all the love and dedication to this. So, you know, and, and he continues it like he he doesn't just talk it. He really lives it. He nurtures these students. And, you know, not just at the city at the Guardsman, which is the newspaper there at City College, but also sending them our way, you know incredibly grateful to, to Juan and his family, you know, for not just paving the way for me, but for continuing to help me <laughs> as well, you know, in terms of, you know, nurturing students and, and, you know, hopefully setting the or setting the stage for the next generation of journalists. Last question. We salute you for your good work. And now we ask that you pay it forward. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work? Absolutely, man. And that's Renaissance Journalism. Nonprofit journalism, uh, sorry, a nonprofit journalistic outfit out here. They're, they don't kind of cover anything. They're not a media outlet per se, but they fund up and coming journalists and journalism projects and newsroom. John Funabiki was the, uh, I believe, the founding executive director. He has since retired. John Funabiki, if y'all, for those who don't know, please look him up. Amazing, amazing person. I consider him a mentor of mine, especially at SF State. 
was somebody that helped me understand the power of community and ethnic media and has been an ally of our organization. Valerie Bush is the new ED there and is you know continuing the amazing work that they've always done. Love the work that you know Renaissance journalism does. And one of the reasons why is because it's community-based, right? And community doesn't have to be tied to a certain ethnic group, right? And, you know, John and Valerie, I feel we're really great at, at, uh, at looking at, like, what brings us together and, like, the power of sharing our stories together. And they were putting funds behind journalists to, like, pursue these stories. So, and that's what we need a lot of times. A lot of times, you know, journalists, we know, don't get paid a whole lot, but we still, like, we do what we do because we love it. But at the same time, we do need some financial help to get these stories up and make them, you know, and tell them the, the tell these stories in the best way possible. So that's definitely one. There are other organizations too, but I'll just leave it at that one. Salute them and and the wonderful work that they do and will continue to do. Alexis Terrazas, editor in chief of El Tecolote, which means the owl. Thank the you owl. for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the journalism salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.